You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. It's good to be back. We had the opportunity last week to go away. Our family went on a vacation. We went to Ohio to go camping in Amish country. Uh, I'm glad to be back, and I'm really excited to be back in the book of Mark. We have a lot to cover tonight, a lot of verses to cover, a lot of story to cover, and so we should get right into it. We've already seen in Mark's gospel that he hit the ground running. He did not begin with a cute story about angels and shepherds and and wise men coming. There was no baby in a manger. Instead, he began with a preacher from the desert, John the Baptist, announcing to the world that the Messiah has come, that the Lamb of God is here, that the kingdom of God is near, and that he could take away your sins. And so Jesus then is baptized, and in his baptism, he identifies himself with mankind. He is tempted to prove that he is perfectly sinless, and then he begins his miracle-working ministry to prove that he indeed is the Son of God. He preaches to tell us what he's about, why he's here. He is on a rescue mission to, pr- to provide hope to the hopeless, His invitation then remains the same as his invitation to us today. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what Jesus was all about. That's what Jesus is all about. Now he has at least a few disciples with him, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. In our text this evening, we will see a day in the life of Jesus. If some of you watched the show about Jack Bauer called 24, doom, 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 right? Yeah, so if you, if you know that noise, you know that show. And it was amazing to see how much Jack Bauer went through in a 24-hour period and how little he had to go to the bathroom. That was incredible. Um, but here we have this, this 24-hour period where we see the life of Jesus, his ministry. What is it like to be with him for a day? Well, we get a chance to see it, and it's just fantastic. So uh, let's look. My goal tonight is to move quickly through the text. Uh, I'm hoping to cover more than I usually do. I don't know if you've noticed in the book of Mark, but I'm trying to go faster. I'm trying to to, to get the big picture of what's going on and not get so caught up in all the wonderful little lessons that are there too. So what I'm going to try and do, hopefully, is I'll try and point out the little lessons as we go and then land on the big stuff at the end. That's the goal. And so here we have three miracles that Jesus performed. Uh, he, Mark records in his gospel about 17 miracles. And so three of them are here in short order. There are so many good lessons to learn. And so you've got to pay attention And this is one of those times I think you really have to say, Spirit, there's going to be a lot coming. There's a lot of text here. There's a lot of lessons here. Show me what you want me to leave here with tonight. Because you can't leave here with it all. None of us can. But there might be something in here for you. So pay attention and and try and get it. We'll begin reading in verse 21. We find Jesus here preaching in the synagogue. Mark chapter 1 verse 21 says, And they went to Capernaum. And straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and he taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. We saw this verse last time, but I think it's valuable to reiterate the intrinsic authority 
of Jesus' words. We, we said this morning, it's truth speaking truth. Can you imagine that? The truth speaking truth. What does that sound like? It's no wonder that people were astonished. When truth is being spoken and people are listening, what might we expect to happen? Well, on one hand, we might expect people's lives to be changed. We would expect people to respond and to understand what God has come to do. But on the other hand, we might expect some opposition, some interference. And that's exactly what happens in verse 23. Satan is not content to allow people to listen to truth undistracted. And so that's why it's important that we pay attention on purpose. Right? Try to get out of the text what's here. Verse 23. There was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Here, Jesus is dealing with a man in the synagogue. It's a Jewish man. And mid-sermon, so imagine Jesus there, imagine the people there, and mid-sermon, someone stands up in the back and starts shouting. That'd be crazy, right? Have you ever been in a service where somebody like just starts shouting out in the middle of the service? <laughs> yeah, some of you have. Um, I think that that time it was more toward the end of it. I was wrapping up, and the guy from the back wasn't really happy, and he was shouting and running, and he's going to tackle me, I think. Um, Good thing Pastor and Ajo were here. They protected me. <laughs> I was just up in the front laughing. <laughs> it's a terrible response. Okay, we're getting off point, though. Uh, so here's this man, and he shouts out, right? But he asks these questions, and pay attention to what he's saying. Leave us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? He knows who Jesus is. He knows the humanity of Christ, right? He knows that he's from or that he grew up in Nazareth. But not only does the demon know this, he says, are you come to destroy us? I know who you are, thou son of God. It's actually not very often in the Gospels that people refer to Jesus as the son of God. Most of the time, it's Jesus referring to himself that way. So it's interesting that one of the main times that somebody recognizes the deity of Christ, who he really is, is this demon. He calls him the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God is, is a title that's reserved for God himself. Isaiah uses it of God. In fact, Steve Lawson said this. He said, the title Holy One of God means that Jesus is infinite and absolutely holy, fully and perfectly divine. He is transcendent and majestic. He came down from above to save sinners, yet he is apart from sinners in that he is completely sinless, without any moral blemish, perfect in all of his ways. His being is holy, his character is holy, his mind is holy, his motives are holy, his words are holy, his actions are holy, his ways are holy, his judgments are holy. From the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, every inch, every ounce, the totality, the sum, and the substance of the second person of the Godhead is equally holy with God the Father. And so that, that's a, a great summary of the holiness of Christ. But what's amazing here is that we're being taught it 
by a demon. It's the demon that understands this is who Jesus is. It's the demon with the best theology. He knows not only who he is, but he knows what he's come to do. To destroy evil. To conquer death. To defeat Satan and his legions. And what a shame to have such good theology and to be lost for eternity. Intellectual assent to the tenets of the gospel, the very different thing from falling before the cross as a sinner, seeing your need of salvation, crying out to Christ in faith, the Savior. This demon knew who Jesus was. He knew what he came to do. He knew it all. He had no faith, no trust. It would be terrible if people in this church knew so much about the gospel and didn't know Christ. Verse 25, here's Jesus' response. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. Hold thy peace is a polite, very Elizabethan English way of saying, Shut your mouth. It it means be muzzled. Like it's shut up. Don't speak. Don't say another word. I love the directness and the authority of Jesus as he addresses the demon, right? He's not there to have a discussion, a debate. He's not there to, well, you think, let's just talk for a little bit and reason this out. He just commands complete silence. And then he says, come out of him. Verse 26, when the unclean spirit had torn him, and this is just a a convulsing that would have happened in the man, and he cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. Right? And so with, the, with that, with those words, this man's life is restored to him, and the demon is gone. Verse 27, They were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. Immediately his fame spread abroad, throughout all the region round about Galilee. You notice what Mark highlights in this miracle? We're going to be seeing the three miracles tonight. What he highlights here in this first miracle is the authority of Jesus over demons and the response of the people in spreading the fame of Jesus. So we see that Jesus has perfect and complete authority over over this demon. There's no question about it. And we see that when people see that, his fame is spread abroad. Now let's move to miracle number two. Here is the shortest miracle in Mark's gospel, verse 29. It says, And forthwith they come out of the synagogue, and they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now what do you like to do when you leave church in in the morning? What do you do? Go home and you eat. Or you go to a restaurant and you eat. For some reason, sitting in church for that long, hearing all of this, getting all spiritual food, it makes you really hungry. And so they leave the synagogue after a morning there, after all of these events. They head to uh, Simon Peter's house, uh, Andrew's house, and they're ready for some great food. But what happens? Verse 30, instead of food, they find out, but Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. How much do you love the phrase, anon they tell him of her? (laughs) What does it mean? Well, it means... At once, immediately, they told Jesus about the mother-in-law. Now, why is there urgency here? Why is it that right away they walk in the house and they're, Jesus, come here. We need to tell you that, that 
Simon Peter's mother-in-law is sick. Because they're hungry and they want to get her better. No, <laughs> I don't think that's it. I think that, that it was probably pretty serious. I think that the sickness was pretty serious. I think that, that Peter's mother-in-law was close to death. And maybe, maybe they were trying to get to Jesus before Peter could get her out of the house again. No. <laughs> some of you got that. Some of you, not so much. Um, no, so I think that, he, that she was pretty seriously sick. I think that urgency was required. Verse 31, they came and they took her by the, took and, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her and she ministered unto them. Matthew tells us that he spoke and the fever left. Luke tells us that he took her hand. Here he's the... Jesus lifts her up. In all of these accounts, we see so clearly that Jesus just goes, and this woman who's on the bed, possibly close to death, is now quickly lifted up. But you notice what she does immediately as she's lifted up? She ministers unto them. Her immediate response to the healing of Christ is service toward Christ. She did exactly what he needed her to do at the time. This demonstrates, first of all, that her healing was full and complete. It wasn't like she was feeling a little bit better. It wasn't like she, she you know, made a turn for the better or, or what, the drugs started kicking in. She got up as if nothing had happened. She was all better and she was serving. When Jesus met her, she was sick and possibly to the point of death. She had no ability to serve him. After he heals her, her immediate response is to get up and to serve him. Great picture. Verse 32. And at even, when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases. And he cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. Can anyone guess why they waited until the sun set to bring the diseased and the possessed to Jesus to be healed? Sabbath is over. That just strikes me as so strange. Doesn't it, doesn't it strike you strangely that these people are sick and demon-possessed and their family members know that Jesus can heal them? But they wait until sundown. Man, how caught they are in, in that system, right? They don't understand that the Sabbath wasn't created, it was created for them, not man for the Sabbath. They don't understand that coming to Jesus is the very best thing you could do on the Sabbath day. They're just caught in their traditions. But finally they come. I think that, that tells me a little bit about their motives too. They, they knew that Jesus could heal, but they still wanted to keep the law because they didn't see him as a savior. Right? And so that tells us a little bit of why Jesus is trying to actually, we'll see that in the end of this story, he's trying to quiet it down a little bit. He's actually not trying to push the fame. He's not trying to get more people there and more people healed. He's trying to almost back off of that a little bit so he can go somewhere else. It's because people were coming to him with the wrong motives. Do you notice that Mark says, all the city was gathered at the door? I'm sure that's a hyperbole, but the point here is that everybody wanted to see Jesus. I mean, he was famous. Ministry was good. 
If there was ever a time to, to parade victoriously and have people follow him and, and, and set up his kingdom, this is it. He's got everybody there. And that's the opposite of what Jesus desires to do. We also see in the midst of this, Jesus' complete authority once again. He casts out the demons, he heals the sick, and when he does it, he, he casts out the demons, he tells them not to speak. Don't say a word. And they can't. They don't. Because they knew him is an interesting phrase. Why is it that when he tells the demons not to say a word, Mark adds on, because they knew him. Well, there's a couple ideas of why he would have been telling the demons not to say a word. We already know that the first demon that spoke pointed out Jesus as the Holy One of Israel, right? He's the Messiah. He's he's God in the flesh. Now, that's great, and it's true, but part of me wonders if maybe Jesus didn't want a demon to be the one pointing it out. Maybe better if other people saw it or if he said it than a demon said it. But I, I also think there's this whole, he's come to eventually go to a Roman cross, but he's got this ministry before him, and eventually he'll be killed because he knows that he is the Son of God, and he, he expresses himself to be the Son of God, but it has to all happen in God's timing, not Satan's timing. And so he silences the demons because he's on his own timetable. Verse number 35. In the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and he departed into a solitary place and there prayed. And that's a convicting verse to me. Because you think about what Jesus just got through. I mean, he just went through a day where he's preaching in the synagogue and somebody's standing up and they're demon-possessed. And so there's this whole kerfuffle at the synagogue, and he gets back, and instead of getting lunch, he gets to heal another person, and then as soon as it gets dark out, everybody's at his doorstep, and everybody needs to be healed, and the verb that's used there is that he was healing people for a long period of time, and so probably late into the night, here's Jesus still ministering to people, and then early the next morning, he's up. What does he have to do? To go pray, to go talk to his father. There are times that you do ministry, and you feel blessed, you, you feel fortunate, you've been able to be a part of God's service, but you also feel exhausted. And, and maybe we sometimes think that what we need is just a good sleep. What we need is just time to ourselves, time to relax. And here Jesus shows us that what we need is just more time with the Father. It's convicting to me, the idea of giving up your comfort, your ease, your time of rest, to go somewhere by yourself and pray. That's a great example for us. Jesus recognized his need as a human being to pray, and he desired to commune with his Father. Verse 36, And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. You, you see uh, Mark here, just in the, and Simon. Oh yeah, there's other people there too. Um, he's getting his information from Peter, right? And so Peter is the one that is in his mind, and he keeps putting Simon there first. And so he says, Simon and they that were after followed after him. And when they had found him, they said to him, all men seek for thee. In other words, everybody is here, Jesus. We woke up, and when we woke up, people were knocking on the door. And they were like, hey, where is Jesus? And then we went outside to be like, hey, I don't know, he's not in here. And more people came, and more people came. And soon there was just crowds gathered here once again, 
They're all looking for you, Jesus. What are you doing out here? Don't you know how popular you are? Don't you know how much the people want to see you? They want you there. you got to get back there, Jesus. And I feel like Jesus is the king of unexpected responses. He's never saying exactly what you think he's going to say. When, he, when they say, Jesus, everybody's waiting for you, they expect Jesus to get up and go, okay, yeah, let's, let's do this. Let's get back to those people that need me, that want me. Verse 38, Jesus said unto them, let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. What a great verse to, to get us back on track. When we start getting just pulled aside toward things that aren't of the most importance, it's a great verse to remind us, I came here to preach the gospel. That's what I'm all about. I'm not here just to gather a crowd. I'm not here to, just to heal people or to show people you know, that I can do these amazing things. I'm here to preach the gospel. And these people have heard already. But this town over here, they haven't heard yet. And so I need to go there. They tell us that there was around 250 towns in Galilee. And so Jesus had 249 more towns to get to. And he was on his way, going to another synagogue, preaching the gospel, and showing them who he was. This is what he says. He says, don't worry about the crowd. I've preached here. They've heard the kingdom of God is near. They know they need to repent and believe the gospel. I have showed them who I am by my power. It's time to move on to tell others also. Verse 39. He preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee. And he cast out devils. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. The leper approaches Jesus with shocking boldness. But here comes this leper, and he falls before Jesus, and he begs. He begs him, Jesus, I know that if you will, you can make me clean. You have the ability. You have the power. In other words, Jesus, I believe, please make me clean. Now, you have to understand that this man, he's lost everything. This man used to be a, a member of society. He probably had a family. He probably was part of some kind of business. He had a life like everyone else. And now, because of this disease he has, he's outside of the community. He's not welcome in the synagogue. He's unclean. He's not welcomed at social events. He's got to live in a camp with other lepers. And that's his life. Everything he knows and he has has been taken from him. And so he is hes just at his wit's end, right? He's got nowhere else to go. And so he begs Jesus to heal him. Verse 41, And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and said unto him, I will be thou clean. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. You picture that happening. The words leaving Christ's mouth and as the words leave, the leprosy is healed. Just that quick, that immediate power of Christ to eat over this disease. 
Mark tells us that Jesus was motivated by compassion for this man. And we see that in his actions. We see that Jesus doesn't shoo him away. He doesn't throw rocks like others would. He doesn't step back and say, be thou clean. He goes, and even before saying the words, he touches this man. Leprosy is a disease of the flesh. Now, I don't know where this man had the disease. I don't know if it's all over his body or if just part of his body. But most people, you'd, you'd see the disease. You'd see this person, and it would deter you. It would, it would gross you out a little bit. Right? You'd want to step back. That would be the natural reaction. Don't touch me. I don't want to get what you have. And Jesus comes toward this disease. And he pulls it to himself, and he touches him. And then he says, you're right. I can cleanse you. Be thou clean. And the leprosy is gone, and the man is cleansed. What another beautiful picture for us. Man comes to Jesus knowing he has no ability to clean himself. He begs Jesus to cleanse him. and Jesus says, yeah, sure. And it's gone immediately. Verse 43. And he straightly charged him. And forthwith he sent him away and said unto him, See, thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Okay, so all of that, what, what Jesus just told this man to do, it makes sense if you read Leviticus 13 and 14. There we have the rules for knowing whether somebody was a leper or not, and we have the laws of cleansing. If a person is, is somehow healed of leprosy, there's a, a whole procedure of going to the uh, priest and the priest offering a sacrifice for that person and, and checking it and, and making sure he's cleansed. And so Jesus says, go to the priest and, and restore your life. Get back to your old life. Get, get that stamp of approval that you've been cleansed. But don't tell anybody anything. Don't tell them who I, who I am. Don't tell them that I did this to you. Just stay silent and go. Simple, isn't it? Really simple. Verse 45, but he went out and he began to publish it much and to blaze abroad the matter. I don't know, blaze the broad, abroad the matter, but that's what he did. Insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. I don't know if this guy was just willingly ignorant what Jesus said. I don't know if maybe he just thought Jesus didn't know better. I, I think maybe there was a place in himself that he thought this was the right thing to do, to go tell everybody, but he'd been commanded not to. He'd been told not to say anything, and yet the first thing he does is go tell the world about what Jesus has done. You notice that in our story so far, demons obey Jesus. As soon as he speaks, they obey him. The sickness obeys him. The leprosy is gone as the words leave his mouth but this man is told to keep his mouth shut, and what does he do? He just, right away, does the opposite of what Jesus said. There's a song by Todd Agnew called It's Funny. And it's a good song. It says, it's funny how a big old fish can hear your voice, find one man in the whole ocean, and swallow him whole, because you said so. It's funny how a little plant can hear your voice, and grow as big as a tent, to give that man a home, because you said so. And you speak to me all the time, and I can't obey you to save my life. He goes on to talk about the sun standing still, because it heard the voice of God, and the donkey speaking, 
because God said to. And he finishes the song. He says, there's a fish, there's a plant, there's a sun, there's a donkey, and they can all obey you. And it seems like everything can obey you, but I can't. And, and really, this story is a great example for us where everything obeys Jesus except mankind. Everything is, I mean, all, everything is under his complete authority, but he's given mankind a freedom to disobey. And so we do. And we sin. He epitomizes the plight of man, disobedient to the will of God. Even our best efforts, even our righteousnesses, are as filthy rags. I think this is also a reminder to us that our best efforts to spread the gospel, if they're in disobedience to God's command and God's will, can hinder the spread of the gospel. This man may have thought he was doing much to spread the name of Jesus abroad, but what ended up happening is Jesus could no longer speak in that town. He couldn't even be there because the crowds were so crazy, he had to go and leave and be in the desert. So it didn't help the ministry of Christ. So as we look at a text like this, and we're through the three miracles, we're through this, this story, there are so many great lessons. Aren't there? Like, like it just, everywhere you look, we learn that great theologians spend eternity in hell because they have never repented and put their faith in Jesus for salvation. What a great truth that is. What's something we need to remember and know. We know that simple service to Jesus is the correct response to his healing in our life. We learn that all service we render to him must only come after he has enabled us to do so. We learn that it's a bad idea to bring Jesus to your mother-in-law's house if she is sick and you don't want her healed. We learn that prayer... That's, I'm just kidding about that one. That's not something you learn. That's, that's. But we do learn that prayer is important. Important enough to sacrifice personal comfort for. We learn that Jesus would rather preach the gospel to those who have not heard than to continue to perform for those who have heard. We learn that mankind, that we, are the only aspects of creation that, will, that has a will that is bent against God, that even our best intentions produce disobedience. Those are great lessons. But I think Mark's aim is higher than these lessons alone. I think he's trying to reveal to us the nature and the person of Christ. And so, very quickly, before we close, I want you to see the authority of Christ. In every single one of these stories, there is no doubt who is in charge. The demons shudder at his word, and they obey. He forbids them from speaking, and they say not a word. Sickness that has plagued people for years. Sickness that has plagued people since the moment they were born is gone. Perfectly healed without a trace. Jesus speaks as the words leave his mouth. The leprosy leaves the body of this poor man. And as people watch what's happening, and as they listen to what Jesus is saying, they are forced to stand back in awe of the king at work. This is the sovereign king of the universe. This is the one with the power and authority to speak the world into existence. And because he is the creator and the sustainer of life, he has all authority over it. And so Jesus speaks, and his will is done. He is the promised Messiah, the one they've been waiting for. 
The question for them is not whether he has authority. The question for them is, do they want a Messiah that is going to die to save them for eternity? Or do they want a Messiah that will make their life better now? They see the authority. It's proven. There's no question about it. Do they want a Jesus that helps them be feel better, have less coughs, maybe get rid of their leprosy? Or do they want a Jesus who's going to save them from eternal damnation? We are so caught up with our lives today. I say we because I mean me. We all. We're so caught up. And really, if you were to listen to our prayers, if you were to know our inner thoughts, I think we'd be ashamed to, to admit how often our hope is that Jesus will make our lives better, more comfortable, a little bit easier, out of this situation. And so often we have this like focus on today and on tomorrow and, and how we feel right now, and we so rarely step back to see the pig picture, the eternal perspective, right? God has saved us for eternity. And anything that happens, comes into our lives now, it can be for our good and his glory. We should rejoice in those things. And and so the writers of the gospel and the writers of the New Testament, they say crazy things like rejoice in suffering. What do you mean, Jesus? I can't do that. But these people wanted a Jesus that would take away their hurts They didn't want a Jesus that would die to save them. And we have to ask, we see the authority of Christ. What Jesus do we want? Do we want the one that we bow before his authority, even if it means some discomfort? If it means that our life is not as easy? Or we say, yeah, Jesus, I see it. I know you can do miracles. I know your words are powerful. But I only want you if it means I feel better today. We must see the authority of Christ and we must bow before it because he is the king and he knows best. Second thing we see very clearly in all of these stories is the compassion of Christ for all people. Compassion of Christ for all people. Not only is he able to save and to heal and to provide the relief and rescue for a small group or certain people, it seems like his concern is for everyone. And so in the first story, it's a man, probably a Jewish man, in a temple. And he frees him from a demon. And the second story, it's it's a lady, it's a mother-in-law, all by herself in a house. And he heals her. And then it's a man who's the outcast of society. Nobody wanted anything to do with the lepers. And Jesus touches him. He has compassion on him. And he heals him too. And in the midst of all that, we know there were many, many others brought to Jesus, and Jesus was healing them. And and the question we ask when we see Jesus telling people not to speak, not to say anything, is, Jesus, why did you heal him in the first place? Like, the leper would have never told everybody about you if you just wouldn't have healed them. But I think what comes through in this passage is how much Jesus loves them. And he sees their situation, and he is compelled heal them, to save them. Now we know that in all of that, he's showing his divinity, he's showing his power over sin and death and and all those things, but it does seem like Jesus just loves these people. And do you understand that he loves you too? 
Do you understand that this compassion that he has is not for the, just the guy sitting in the front pew? It's not just for the guy wearing a suit on Sunday. It's for the person that can barely get through the doors because they're still hungover. It's for the person who's sitting here tonight who knows that they've committed all of these sins and they believe that God can never love them, never save them. He loves that person. And he takes all of their sickness and all of their disease and with a word, it's gone. It's gone. No trace. That's the authority of Christ and that's the compassion of Christ for all people. I think these two points, that's the main message that Mark is getting across to us. Here is Jesus. This is his authority. This is his power. And this is his mission. And he's showing his ability to, heal, to, to forgive sin in order by showing his ability over things that are, to us, considered more difficult, like sickness and disease and leprosy. We see the compassion of Christ for all people. We see the authority of Christ. And finally, we see the example of Jesus that we are to follow. As we see this story unfold, and we see the heart of Christ demonstrated to us, I think we we have to understand that when, when that's happened to us, when we've encountered Jesus, the right response is the response of the woman to get up and to serve. And her service was so simple, wasn't it? I mean, she just made him lunch or something, got him something to eat, got him something to drink. It wasn't a big deal. But she served. And the right response of believers tonight that have been rescued, that have been healed, that have been forgiven, is to get up and to serve Christ, to follow him. And we follow him. It's really not that, like, oh, what do I do? Well, he loved people. He went around helping people. Yes, you don't have the ability to touch them and heal them, but you do have the ability to relieve some of their pain, to show some love to them. And so let's be on the lookout. How can we be like Christ to these people? And all the time, keeping in our minds that the goal is the gospel. That as we love people, we go out and we we meet physical needs as Jesus did, but we do it with with the goal of bringing them an eternal message, not just temporal relief. The goal is the gospel. We can't do any of that on our own strength. We can't go out. You can't just get up today and be like, okay, yeah, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what Jesus did. I'm going to be like Jesus by myself. But again, we look to the woman and we see that she could do nothing to serve Christ until she was healed. And then he enabled her. He gave her the power And so, standing here tonight and thinking that you don't have the ability, the gift, the whatever to serve Christ, is saying to to Jesus, what you've given me isn't enough. And that's just not true. Jesus has enabled you in some way to serve this body and to show the love of Christ to the people around you. You can do that. It's not a select few. It's not the best of the best. It's not the cream of the crop. It's every person that has been healed and touched by Christ, showing the love of Christ to others. Getting up, going out, and serving him with whatever they have. And so if we'd see these things, we'd see the authority of Christ, we'd see the love of Christ for us, 
fact that he's saved us and healed us, and then we go out and follow his example, and how much better off would our church be? How much could we have an impact in our community and on, on the world? But we just got to do it. It's not good enough to talk about it in church. And so let's go with the goal this week of serving Christ in however way we can. Let's pray.